So, if you remember, before Advent time, we were looking at the book of Acts together. And we were going through the book in a different way than we normally do. Uh, Instead of looking at a little text and then giving a lot of commentary on the text, we were taking great big chunks of the book of Acts and just listening to them and letting them kind of speak into our lives and... and, uh, we were hearing the narratives and the stories, and we were, we were listening for God's Spirit to speak to us within our listening, uh, asking questions like, you know, who am I in this story? Do I relate with a character within this story especially well? Where, where do I find myself here? And especially, what is, what is God's Spirit saying to me as I hear this text? I encouraged you then and I'll encourage you now that if, you, if in the reading of this text you find a, a word, a sentence that just comes out and, and grabs you and just holds your attention, uh, I would encourage you to, to hold that text. Uh, ignore me for the rest of the sermon and just sit with that part, that word. Um, the purpose in, in receiving a sermon, a message, hearing the word of God spoken and explained is not to become more intelligent necessarily or, or, or to even learn anything necessarily. The, the purpose is to become someone, to become more and more who God wants us to be, to grow up, as it were, as a disciple of Christ. So we'll try to do that this morning as we look at the book of Acts. So far in the book, we have seen Jesus ascend to the Father, and then he descends by sending his Holy Spirit on the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. The believers are meeting together daily. They're sharing their possessions and money freely, and they have the genuine respect of the people there in the community. However, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, sees the Christian movement as a threat to its power. Um, Behind this is also their fear that if Jesus becomes the praised one and and is worshipped, then they will be seen as the enemy because it was their kind of instigation, it was their move to have Jesus killed. So the Sanhedrin, this high Jewish council, arrests some of the disciples uh, on a number of occasions. In one instance, they were miraculously released from jail. Whenever they appear before the Sanhedrin, they always just speak plainly and boldly about Jesus, even taking the opportunity to offer his love to the men on that court. A turning point comes in the book of Acts uh, as Stephen, uh, one of the great preachers and caretakers of this first Christian church, uh, is not arrested, but he's lynched, basically. Uh, He's taken out and he's killed by an angry mob. And, And this changes the environment in Jerusalem drastically. So we're gonna pick up the story there in Acts 8. Before we do... Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that this ancient text, because of your Holy Spirit's activity 
in us and around us, this ancient text can still speak to us today. So God, we ask that you would perform that miracle in our presence right now, that we would catch a glimpse or catch a move of your spirit, or catch a, a conviction that you need to bring to us, catch an instruction, a grace, a peace, a joy. Whatever you want to do, God, you do it. We are listening. We are open to what you have for us today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Acts 8 begins this way. Saul was right there congratulating the killers. Again, the killers of Stephen. And that set off a terrific persecution in the church in Jerusalem. The believers were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. All, that is, but the apostles. Good and brave men buried Stephen, giving him a solemn funeral. Not many dry eyes that day. And Saul just went wild, devastating the church, entering house after house after house, dragging men and women off to jail. Forced to leave home base, the followers of Jesus all became missionaries. Wherever they went, wherever they were scattered, they preached the message about Jesus. Going down to a Samaritan city, Philip proclaimed the message of the Messiah. When, when people heard what he had to say and saw the miracles, the clear signs of God's action, they hung on his every word. Many who could neither stand nor walk were healed that day. The evil spirits protested loudly as they were sent on their way. And what joy in the city. Previous to Peter, er, Philip's arrival, a certain Simon had practiced magic in the city, posing as a famous man and dazzling all the Samaritans with his wizardry. He had them all, from little children to old men, eating out of his hand. They all thought he had supernatural powers and called him the great wizard. He had been around a long time and everyone was more or less in awe of him. But when Philip came to town announcing the news of God's kingdom and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, they forgot Simon and were baptizers and were baptized, becoming believers right and left. Even Simon himself was baptized. From that moment, he was like Philip's shadow, so fascinated with all the God signs and miracles that he wouldn't leave Philip's side. When the apostles in Jerusalem received the report that Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John down to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Up to this point, they'd only been baptized in the name of the Master Jesus. The Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on them. Then the apostles laid their hands on them, and they did receive the Holy Spirit. 
When Simon saw that the apostles, by merely laying on hands, conferred the Spirit, he pulled out his money, excited, and said, sell me your secret. Show me how you did that. How much do you want? Name your price. Peter said, to hell with your money, and you along with it. Why, that's unthinkable. Trying to buy God's gift, you'll never be part of what God is doing by striking bargains and offering bribes. Change your ways and now. Ask the master to forgive you for trying to use God to make money. I can see this is an old habit with you. You reek with money lust. Oh, said Simon, pray for me. Pray to the master that nothing like that will ever happen to me. And with that, the apostles were on their way, continuing to witness and spread the message of God's salvation, preaching in every Samaritan town they passed through on their return to Jerusalem. This section serves as a very obvious warning against an over-fascination with signs and wonders, doesn't it? Simon is clearly interested in Jesus for what Jesus can do for him. Uh, his fascination with the supernatural is, is greater than his fascination with Jesus himself. His love of the miraculous is greater than his love of Jesus. I like that he is not dismissed entirely, but he is warned sternly. Because this progression from loving Jesus for what he gives to loving Jesus because he's Jesus is a natural maturing process within the Christian person. The more we grow up in the faith, the more we trust Jesus, even though he doesn't give us what we want or do what we ask him to do. Initially, we might love Jesus because of the warm glow of love and hope and joy that he brings into our life, but eventually we love Jesus because he's Jesus, he's it, he's the reason, he's everything. And when we travel down dark and painful roads, we, we still love Jesus, even though it's not comfortable to do so. Eventually, in our life of following Jesus, the no matter what love of God enables us to love God no matter what. Simon also warns us against an over-fascination with money. Um, Jesus made it abundantly clear that you cannot serve God and wealth. He just said it that way. You can't do it. It's not possible. Uh, you either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and, and love the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Clearly, Simon served wealth 
perhaps none of us would want to admit that we serve wealth, and I don't think anybody would want to admit that. Um, we all would probably be telling ourselves, yes, I serve God no matter what. He's, he's number one. Um, but it's these moments in our lives, like the one Simon faces, that shed light on what we are truly most committed to and most devoted to. It's what we do in our lives that show what we love the most and who we serve the most. The way we turn when there's a fork in the road indicates who we are really serving. Many believers do what uh, Simon's trying to do. He's trying to graft in his worshiping of wealth into his worshiping of, of Jesus. He's trying to make the two compatible. Sonia brought home very interesting homework this week uh, from her history class on the, the, the concept or the, the, the yeah, concept of, of manifest destiny. You remember this one from your uh, probably high school? Uh, they, they educate these kids early. They give them complex stuff in elementary school. Well, he's not, she's not in elementary school, seventh grade. Uh, I'm tired and weak and sore. Um, uh, so anyway, it's this 19th century uh, doctrine, manifest destiny, that the expansion of U.S. settlement across the continent, which included wars with and the dislocation of native populations, was not only justifiable, but inevitable, manifest destiny. It was the obvious destiny God had given us to... Uh, to, to carry out. Looking at the history, it's clearly not a holy movement. It was a genocide. It was not a holy movement. But, but neither is the common sentiment these days that, that, that God wants everyone to have abundant wealth. That God's will for everyone is the manifest destiny of God for your life is that you would be wealthy beyond your imagination. That's complete garbage. In fact, the world could never sustain it. If everybody lived, even in our like kind of more humble, middle-class type ways around the world, the, the earth just doesn't have enough resources to support everybody in the world living the way that you and I live. It's a sobering thought. The promise of wealth is not part of the good news Jesus came to bring. He taught us to pray for our daily bread, but he also promised, he promised hardships, divisions, and difficulty even because of our devotion to him. So confronted with a servant of money, Peter rebukes him sharply. Uh, to hell with your money. To hell with you. And then he instructs him to pray. To pray for forgiveness. To pray for a change of heart. To pray for change. There's always hope for repentance. Back to the text. Later, God's angel spoke to Philip. 
At noon today, I want you to walk over to that desolate road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. He got up and went. He met an Ethiopian eunuch coming down the road. The eunuch had been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was returning to Ethiopia, where he was minister in charge of all the finances of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He was riding in a chariot and reading from the book of Isaiah. The spirit told Philip, climb into the chariot. So running alongside, Peter heard, uh, Philip heard the eunuch reading Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he answered, how can I without some help? And he invited Philip into the chariot with him. The passage he was reading was this. As a sheep led to the slaughter and quiet as a lamb being sheared, he was silent, saying nothing. He was mocked and put down, never got a fair trial. But who now can count his kin since he's been taken from the earth? The eunuch said, tell me, who is the prophet talking about, himself or some other? Philip grabbed his chance. Using this passage as his text, he preached Jesus to him. As they continued down the road, they came to a stream of water, and the eunuch said, here is water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, and Philip baptized him on the spot. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of God suddenly took Philip off, and that was the last the eunuch saw of him. But he didn't mind. He had uh, what he'd come for and went on down the road as happy as he could be. Philip showed up in Azotus and continued north, preaching in all the villages along the route until he arrived at Caesarea. Sometimes God gives specific orders, doesn't he? Sometimes, once in a while, God is very particular, or specific, not particular, but specific in what he wants you and I to do. We still have to follow creatively, though. The Spirit tells Philip, get into that chariot. Now, Philip could have just jumped into the chariot and been promptly kicked out by the guy, right? I mean, you don't jump into somebody's chariot just because, eh, the Spirit of God told me to. You know, you're gone, right? Uh, so Philip obeyed creatively. He just runs along the chariot. Like, I got to, the call is to be in there. So I'm going to get as close to there as I can. And he overhears uh, the, the, the guy uh, reading out of Isaiah. Isaiah. And, and, and he's just like, yeah, that, wow, that's the Bible. I know that full and well. And so he just asks the question, hey, do you know what that guy's talking about? What an amazing opening. Just, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And this Ethiopian eunuch says, I, I, can't, I can't understand unless someone explains it, explains it to me. And, and he's like, well, I, I know a thing or two about, about that book. He, and, and he Come on in. And he just 
simply tells the man about Jesus and what he's done, using the very text he was reading as his jumping off point. I think for far too long, evangelical Christians have taken the command of God to share, to proclaim um, the message. And they've applied it, we have applied it, without creativity. Um, We've jumped into the chariot without asking a question first. We've jumped into the chariot without running alongside that chariot for a while, without engaging in a normal opening with the other person. We're like the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses that visited my door a, a while ago, uh, trying to create a spiritual conversation out of thin air. It's impossible And quite frankly, it's offensive. But we're still called to share our faith. We're still called to testify, to simply talk about what God has done in our lives. So when we feel called to share our faith with someone, we've got to pause and pray and discern the timing and be creative. And then like Philip, when the time comes, we can share openly using the whatever is at hand to talk about what Jesus has done and what he's done in our lives. And we can trust that the Holy Spirit that led Philip to say the right words will lead you and I to say the right words as well. Let's look at one more section together. All this time, Saul was breathing down threats down the necks of the master's disciples, out for the kill. He went to the chief priests and got arrest warrants to take to the meeting places in Damascus so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, the way was the first way we were referred to. Followers of the way. Whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. So he set off. When he got to the outskirts of Damascus, he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. As he fell to the ground, he heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? He said, who are you, master? I am Jesus, the one you are hunting down. I want you to get up and enter the city. In the city, you'll be told what to do next. His companions stood there dumbstruck. They could hear the sound but couldn't see anyone while Saul, picking himself up off the ground, found himself stone blind. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. He continued blind for three days. He ate nothing, drank nothing. There was a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias. 
The master spoke to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, master, he answered. Get up and go over to Straight Avenue. Ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's there praying, and he's just had a dream in which he saw a man named Ananias enter the house and lay hands on him so that he could see again. Ananias protested, Master, you can't be serious. Everybody's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing. His reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem. And now he's shown up here with papers from the chief priest that give him license to do the same to us. But the master said, don't argue, go. I have picked him as my personal representative to non-Jews and kings and Jews. And now I'm about to show him what he's in for, the hard suffering that goes with this job. So Ananias went. He found the house, placed his hands on blind Saul, and said, Brother Saul, the master sent me. The same Jesus you saw on your way here. He sent me so you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got to his feet, was baptized, and sat down with them to a hearty meal. The book of Acts is a record of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the first church of Jesus Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. What a radical God's Spirit is. What a crazy God we serve. A God who not only uh, loves the unlovable, loves this ancient terrorist to the first church, but pursues him, transforms him, and calls him to be one of the first apostles. Our God is crazy. Someone said he's drunk with love. Look at how much he loves you. Look at how much he loves his church. He strikes down Saul with his bright light and confronts him. And Saul says, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And Saul hasn't done anything directly to Jesus. Saul and Jesus didn't interact so far as, as we know. But Saul is persecuting Christians. Saul is putting them in jail. And so much does Jesus love his people that when they suffer, he suffers. Jesus doesn't say, I'm Jesus. You know, 
the people you're persecuting love me. No, he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Jesus doesn't just call you his own. He experiences life with you. This is also a scene in which the Spirit gives very specific orders, isn't it? How he tells Saul, get up, go into the city, just hang out there for a while. And then the spirit comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, you got to go talk to this guy named Saul. Lay your hands on him. He knows you're coming because I talked to him about it. And, and you're going to you're gonna speak to him and pray for him. He's going to get his sight back. Uh, and I love that Ananias doesn't just go. <clears throat> it's a very realistic story, actually. Ananias protests. He says, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> you're joking. This Saul is terrorizing your church. And you want me to just to show up, introduce myself and say, I'm here to pray for you in Jesus' name? That's ridiculous. And in that moment, Jesus doesn't give up on him or find someone else to serve him or question his loyalty even. He just stays with him and says, look, don't argue with me. I know what I'm doing. Here's the plan. A little bit of the plan. And he convinces Ananias to obey God's will. When we know what God wants us to do, we have two good options and one awful option. We can either resist openly or obey. Those are good options. It is excellent to wrestle with God. It is a good thing to do to wrestle with God and say, that sounds ludicrous. I don't want to do that. That doesn't seem right or profitable or good. It is good to wrestle with God. He will have his way and, 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 and he will continue to work with you and in you and grow you and develop you and, and God's kingdom will come and you're not abandoning God when you wrestle with him. Or if you have the faith, you can just obey with whatever he's asked you to do. The thing we must not do is ignore God. The thing we must not do is, is, is stop up our ears to what we're hearing and just ignore him and go on our merry way. As we've gathered here this morning and as we've heard God's word read, I believe that God's spirit is, is active and, he, and talking to us and, and nudging us and, and whispering to us or causing us to, to move a certain way. And the spirit's mysterious, like a wind. He just blows around, you know, and, and, and he wants his will to be done because it's the best will. He wants the best life for us. So we face a choice uh, Whenever we hear God's word, whenever we read God's word and sense he's speaking, we can, we can openly resist. It's okay to do so. Wrestle with him this morning. Wrestle with him this week. 
Or we can obey, and, and if you have it in you to obey, oh, it's much easier and much nicer to just go the way God wants you to go and do what God wants you to do, whether it's a little thing or a great thing. It doesn't matter. Just obey. But what I pray we never do is simply ignore him and let the story die, uh, even as God has spoken. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you alone know what you want from your people. Uh, what, it's, it's your will, God, that we want to be done, not our will. It's your plan that we want to see come to fruition, not our will. So Holy Spirit, keep speaking to us. And God, I pray that you would empower us, give us the boldness push back against you, to, to resist actively, to question, to wrestle. At least give us that, Lord. Pray you'd give us the strength to obey, to simply follow where you are leading. Give us faith to go where you lead. And God, if we have been ignoring you, hearing your word so clearly, and then just walking away, not allowing it to take root in our lives, I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would change our hearts. That we might, again, be able to listen and wrestle, listen and obey. Let your will be done, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.